You guys look good this morning. It's like you got an extra hour of sleep or something. I know, I uh, appreciated that today. If you want to open up to Ephesians, uh, the end of chapter 2, that's where we're headed this morning. And as we've shared already in our time of worship today, this first Sunday in November is a time that many churches around the world stop to recognize that, that when we worship God, we don't simply worship Him as this one local gathered group of people, that, that we are also joined to a family of brothers and sisters around the world, many of whom are facing difficulties and challenges that are hard for us to imagine. Reading of the persecution and the, the kind of hostility that many believers face in in nations across the world is is heart-wrenching. It's difficult for us to to read and to understand. But I think it's it's interesting to connect that back to what we read in Ephesians 2 last week. How Christ has come as a, a mission agent of peace. And how he's intentionally targeted places of division and hostility both in our world and in our own hearts, in order to to bring them down and to create something new in their place. The mission of Christ is to make us a people of peace. The mission of Christ is to create his body, his church, throughout the world. In the first century, Paul witnessed that that miracle unfolding, right, as, as the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile was torn down. And all these new expressions of what Paul calls a a new humanity sprung up. Little clusters of people worshiping God together. But here's the thing, that that happened in Paul's context. But as we stand now almost 2,000 years removed, we're actually witnessing that same miracle today being multiplied. That it's growing in a kind of exponential fashion. As historian Philip Jenkins observes in his book, The Next Christendom, today, in this current moment, we are living through one of the transforming moments in the history of religion worldwide. And while many of us share the stereotype that Christianity is a religion of the West, over the last century, the center of gravity in the Christian world has shifted inexorably southward to Africa and to Latin America, and to parts of Asia, too. Jenkins goes on to quote Kenyan scholar John Mabuti, and he says, Now the centers of today's church are no longer in Geneva, or in Rome, or in London, or in New York, but they're in places like Kinshasa, and Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila. I think the way that God is bringing together this great and and global church is evidence that that what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is in fact happening, right? Those dividing walls have come down. God is gathering those who were far away and those who are near to himself. And and the reality of a global church is, I think, one of the most undertold and underappreciated stories of our age. The church in the past hundred or 150 years has quite literally become a people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. They've been gathered into the one body 
of Jesus Christ. And as we come to the end of Ephesians chapter 2 today, we get a picture of that new humanity. We get a picture of that new church gathered into the body, into the, the cross and the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as Paul concludes this section in chapter 2, he wants to also finish with another image. Right? Paul, Paul said last week that, that Christ has torn down a dividing wall between peoples in order that he may now build something up in its place. And he says that that thing that Christ has intended to build is a household, a home for God himself to dwell. That God is joining those in Pakistan and those in Nigeria and those in Brazil. And he's even joining us, you know, with the people at the end of our pews that we may not spend a whole lot of time connecting with and talking to. He's joining us all together into a new household for himself. This morning I want to look at that image, these last four verses in chapter 2, and consider what that has to say for who we are together at JCC. Would you pray with me as we turn to verse 19 of chapter 2? Lord, thank you that we are gathered because of your mercy, because of your power against the powers and principalities of darkness and of this great age in which we live where we contend in the power of your spirit, Lord, you are tearing down walls. You're growing something new. You're fashioning us into a people, into a home, into a household of the living God. Lord, I pray as we encounter this truth in your word, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Picking up with verse 19 then. And like so many other parts of this letter, verse 19 begins with a word that points us back to just what's come previously. In this case, it's the word consequently. Paul has, has just been through how Christ has, again, torn down those walls of hostility on the cross, how he's gathered this diverse group of people to himself, into himself, and how he's fashioned a new humanity, a people that now all have access, he says, to God the Father, and a people who are filled with his Holy Spirit. And so now, in verse 19, he goes on to say, consequently, consequently, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. You are also members of his household. Paul describes here how God is moving what has been outside of the church, outside of his people, into the interior, into the center. One of the first terms I had to learn upon arriving in Vermont almost three years ago was the word flatlander. Any of you discover this when you moved here? This was a new phrase to me. And I I came to discover that in fact it applies to me. I am a flatlander according to the way Vermonters use this word. And I, I looked up one of the many definitions offered. I went to the website vermonter.com and they defined a flatlander as a person who thinks they can meld their beliefs about what Vermont is into our 
reality. You can hear even in that definition a kind of us and them. The term implies the perspective of an outsider, and it's a perspective that isn't particularly desired, right? It isn't welcome. The same article goes on to state that even if a flatlander lives in this state for 50 years, they remain a flatlander. You you can't shake the title. And so maybe that's just a little taste of what cultural divisions were like in the first century and to the people Paul is writing to in Ephesus. In the, the Roman world, most social situations had the natives and the flatlanders. They had the insiders and the outsiders or what Paul here describes as foreigners and strangers. And you are either one or the other based on your your ethnicity, based on your social standing, based on your gender, based on all sorts of different categories. This is who you were, and there was very little hope that that would ever change in your lifetime. Paul uses those phrases here to, to show us a contrast. Paul says in verse 19... As a consequence of all that Christ has now done. Within the people of God, those terms, foreigner and stranger, are abolished. They've been done away with. And within the church of Jesus Christ, God has chosen to use a new vocabulary, a new set of terms for his people. Whatever you and I were called before we came here, before we came into this body, Paul says that now in this place we are called citizens. We have been enfranchised. We've been given an interest in this new collection of people called the church. And then Paul goes on to add a second, even more intimate term. He says, not only are you and I now citizens in the people of God, but we are members of God's household. Right? Before we were strangers sort of peering in at the windows. But now, Paul says, we've been welcomed into the interior, into the family home. You are now part of God's own household. To appreciate what what Paul is speaking about, we have to remember that in Paul's day, there was no such thing as a nuclear family. You didn't have your own bedroom. You didn't have your own wing of the house. Your grandparents didn't move away and live in Florida. Households were were multi-generational. They were numerous. There were people living and working in close proximity with one another. And the lives of a household were were bound up deeply with one another. I wonder, is is that how you and I think about our lives together in the church? Do we picture ourselves as an extended family? As people who live and work in close proximity, whose lives are bound up together? This is how Paul describes this new thing called the church. Church. And he says to become part of the church is less like joining an organization. It's more like entering into our place in a family. The church means we're invited to share in the hearth, in the table, in the commerce of God himself. Paul says God has moved us from outsiders to become members of this new household. 
And he says, as people welcomed into this new household, he, he wants us to understand what, what rests at the foundation of this new church he's created, of this life and this home we now share in together. And so in verse 20, he goes on to describe the foundation of this house. He says, you are members of God's household and you've been built, verse 20, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. We're now getting a look at God's household from the ground up. We're getting a look at the foundation itself. And at this, again, time in history, that was, was a significant task. Right? To dig a foundation, you didn't just call in the excavator. You didn't just line up a concrete truck and, and pour your foundation into the ground. Right? At this time in history, you laid a foundation and you laid it with large, heavy stones. And the key to the the building's success, to its integrity and stability, were the very first foundation stones that were placed into the ground. If you were to go to Jerusalem today, you can see some of the foundation stones of Herod's temple, which was built in the lifetime of Paul, the lifetime of Jesus, or just before them. And one stone in particular that you can still see, it's, it's buried under the ground. You have to go under a tunnel to, to see it. They call the master stone. It's in a series of, of these large stones. And it's one solid piece of stone that measures 41 feet in length, 11 and a half feet high, and 15 feet in depth. And it's estimated to weigh around 600 tons. Right? A, a modern-day crane couldn't even touch it. Right? It, it would, would have trouble figuring out even how to, to make it move just a little. These foundation stones provided the strength and the, the structural integrity for that entire massive structure that rose upon them. And Paul, who was quite familiar with these stones in Jerusalem, right, he explains that for the church, God has laid his own foundation. God has laid his own master stones through the ministry of the apostles and prophets. Paul says this, this household has has begun to take shape through the message proclaimed to you, the gospel that the apostles and prophets have taken out from Jerusalem to places like Ephesus and Corinth and and to the, the faraway places of the Roman world. Right? In, in the work they're doing, they begin to lay the foundation of this new home, this new people. But he goes on to say that the foundation, the gospel that they proclaim has integrity. Why? Because it is centered upon, it is related in every detail to another stone. Right? To an even more critical part of this foundation. What Paul calls the chief cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus himself. And as I understand it from from what I've read and seen, laying a stone foundation like the one Paul is describing here, it's kind of like laying a tile floor. Any of you ever laid tile in your, your house or your bathroom? Right? Everything depends on the placement of that first piece of tile. Right? If you haven't 
done your, your lines right, if you haven't got it all figured out, you lay that, wrong, that first piece in the wrong place and everything else gets messed up as a result. In the same way, in laying a stone foundation, the cornerstone is that first piece that's laid. And not only does it support the weight of the structure, but it also sets the course, it sets the alignment, it sets the trajectory of of where every stone after it is going to be placed. And in the same way, we might say that the identity, the the, the trajectory of, of who we are as a people has been set in stone. Because we are a family, a household laid down upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And who he is gives us our direction. We're meant to be a people who are aligned with Jesus in his death. We're meant to be a people who are aligned with Jesus in resurrection life. We're meant to be a people who are aligned with Jesus in in his risen and ascended power and authority. Everything we are, everything we do, is meant to be defined by who Christ is. He is our cornerstone. He's the the only thing that causes us to hang together as a people. So we might ask, well, does our vision of the church have that kind of centrality? Does the the vision of the church we have have that kind of simplicity? Is Jesus Christ the, the center of everything we do? Is he the chief cornerstone? And if not, then, then we need to realign, reposition ourselves in response. Because if we look into verses 21 and 22, the the household God has made doesn't just finish with the laying of the foundation stones, right? But that building continues to go skyward. It goes upward and there are more stones yet to come. And this is the part where we get joined in. Look at with, with me at verses 21 and 22. Paul says, in Christ Jesus... This whole building, this whole household of God that we are now members of is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So we've seen Christ go and and take the stranger and the foreigner and move them into his household. We've seen how Christ provides the foundation for this new home in himself, verse 20. And now in these two verses, we get to see that, that work of construction move upward. We see the walls go up on the foundation. And we get a picture of Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the mason at work... And the work that's described in both of these verses is the work of joining or building the stones together. But again, if we revisit the construction sites of the first century, that that joining work was no small thing. At this time in history, you couldn't go to Lowe's and, and buy uniform bricks that had been poured. You couldn't buy pavers. And what made it even more difficult is that there was no mortar in existence to secure the blocks with one another. So that meant if you were building 
you know, a structure, this is again a temple wall, or whether you were building a family home, right? Each piece of stone had to be hewn by hand, quarried. And then it, that, that, that block had to be cut with such precision that it would fit perfectly, right? End to end. And would lay on top of the stones beneath it without any, any major gaps. The fit had to be precise. And depending on the, the stone and the project and the size that was um, being worked upon, just to lay two pieces of stone together would easily take dozens, if not hundreds of hours to, to join in this fashion. And it's that image then that Paul uses to explain what Jesus is doing in the church. He says this is what Jesus is doing in us. He's taking the living stones of his church and he's hewing them out. He's laying them end to end and he's making sure that fit is precise. We are being fitted and fashioned and joined together in Christ. Right, so that each of us rest securely upon him as our foundation. We're not out of balance in terms of what's beneath us. But also horizontally, right, that we're joined perfectly together with one another. Right, he's smoothing out those gaps so that the fit is exact. So that this is a home that, that God is building in Christ with each of these component pieces. And I think that this is a vision, maybe, an image that we lose sight of sometimes. Because as much as, as I believe that God works on me as an individual, He wants to know me, He wants to be in relationship with me as a person, I think one of His great desires is to join me together with His people, with His body, with His church. Right? Jesus hasn't come to, to carve me into my own individual statue of personal piety. Right? That's, that's not the object for which Christ died and went to the cross. Right? In Christ, God is making me, he's making us into living stones that are fitted together with each other. That's the verb here. Growing together, aligned together in him and with each other. This is a corporate reality. Joined to him, joined to one another. And my sense is that, that that work of being joined is a process that will likely take hundreds, if not thousands of hours of Christ's careful work in each of us to accomplish. Right? Chipping away at who we are. Teaching us how to surrender our lives so that the life of Christ might be integrated into what we are becoming. Right? Hundreds of hours of being placed side by side with one another. Right? Next to, to Glenn and next to Brian, next to Karen, right? So that that our rough edges and our gaps and the places that we don't quite fit together as a family are, are slowly finished off. That the Christ's work begins to, to take place in those details as well. Right? It's, it's a long and labor-intensive process. 
that takes humility and, and perseverance and trust that God, in fact, knows what he's doing, that, that he's able to bring this whole thing together. That's our life in the church. That's what Jesus Christ is doing, Paul says. He's fitting and fashioning these stones. But here's the thing. As, as all of that is going on, if we step back to see why Christ is doing this, what is he building we discover that this is no ordinary structure. This isn't just a simple home. Verses 21 and 22 let us into this great mystery. That as Jesus Christ fits and fashions us together on his foundation, he's making us into a temple. Paul says to be the very dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. God is making not a temple with human hands, not fashioned with 600 ton pieces of limestone block, but he's fashioning a temple out of people who are rescued, people who are redeemed, people who were far away, people who were lost. He's gathering them to himself and he's fitting them together into a temple where he now desires to dwell. And to capture just how profound, how beautiful, how awe-inspiring the work of God's renovation truly is. I want us to just briefly, for one moment, go back to the beginning of chapter 2. Think about this whole chapter as the entirety of that construction process. Think about where we began. This is the beginning of our story. Paul says, as for you, as for you, these people who are going to be built into this great thing... You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You used to live in them while you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who was at work in those who are disobedient. Paul says this is who we once were. Those living in death, those marred by sin, those filled with a spirit of disobedience. And now look, through the work of Christ... Through what he has done in in forming the church around himself. Through his own sacrifice. Through his own death. Through his resurrection. Look at what has transpired. Look at these final two verses. But now, because Christ loved us. Because he's broken down our walls. We are members of his household. We're part of a holy temple in the Lord. We are filled not with the spirit of disobedience, but with the spirit of the living God himself. Together we rise to be part of this holy temple. Right? We are the dwelling place of God himself. And at, at the center of that dwelling place is the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Is his body offered for us. And so this morning we are coming to the Lord's table. We are celebrating communion as as an invitation into this household, as the meal that binds us to Christ, right, and binds us together with one another.